walking in a country and I've been chasing after my shadow. Hey, back again just a couple days later for episode 33 of the Camino Podcast. I'm Dave Woodson. And perhaps it seems sometimes like there's a master plan behind these episodes, some underlying principle that guides me forward. (laughs) On the contrary, I tend to serendipitously find my way towards themes as conversations fall into place, in the same way, I suspect, that we make the bulk of our meaning on pilgrimage in retrospect. Everything seems cleaner and more inevitable in hindsight. In the last two episodes, I spoke with people who were giving back to the Camino. John Brierley by creating guides to help pilgrims on their twin pilgrimages, Brad Genereau by leading other veterans in a rite of re-entry on pilgrimage through veterans on the Camino, and Rebecca Scott through her nonprofit Peaceable Projects, along with assorted other initiatives. Brad and Rebecca provided easy outlets for all of us to give back materially through contributions to their organizations. There are many other ways to give back to the Camino, of course. And coincidence led me squarely down this road when Rebecca mentioned during our interview that the ditch pigs would be wrist-deep in garbage a few days hence. I couldn't pass up the opportunity to make that call. And with that in place, I realized that it would be worth tracking down other great volunteer opportunities, working as an hospitalero in an albergue, and supporting the staff in the Pilgrim office in Santiago. So this episode features four interviews. Amelia, a French-Irish-Canadian, and Jim, an American living in Madrid, who served as ditch pigs, Julianne Milne of Sydney, Australia, who now runs training programs for aspiring hospitaleros, and Tom of Florida, USA, who volunteers annually in the Pilgrim office in Santiago. It's a stuffed episode, (laughs) and that's with another 40 minutes of interviews left on the cutting room floor, but that makes it the perfect length for a nice long stroll. So download the podcast on your phone and hit the trail and enjoy. It was a calm, peaceful day in the Meseta when I called Rebecca Scott. Everything was going perfectly according to plan. We're having a little crisis here. The, the guys have the litter cart stuck in the mud somewhere, and the other guy's gone to rescue them. Well, I'm sure Rebecca has it under control. Besides, she connected me with Amelia to speak with. Here's Amelia. I live in Alberta, Canada, half of the year, and the other half I'm in France. And when I'm in France, I come into the Camino a couple of times. So this year I'm helping out doing the cleanup. So right now, as you know, we're down in Spain doing it, making it happen. <laughs> Why did you decide to become a ditch pig? Well, I don't like litter anywhere. I don't like it around my home. I don't like it around my grandkids' school. So that's the first thing. And then the Camino is close to my heart. Anybody who's done it typically find an affinity with it. There's a protective quality that comes out in a person. So, you know, you look after what you love. Can you tell me about what today has been like? Okay, well, today was divided into three parts. We had um, an early morning, almost excavation part, where a section was used as a dumping area by, I don't know who it was, but it's along the Camino, and it dated back to quite some time. So there was broken glass and all that kind of stuff that we tried to get rid of. took four of us to do that. Couldn't count the number of bags we did there. And then later on, we broke up into three um, groups. There are six of us, but two, two, and two. Because I think I filled 18 bags of trash today. Wow. 18 bags. The bags are probably like a 20-liter bag. And that's just me. That's not the group. <laughs> that's, that's one person. And you don't move too fast because you're moving along and you got both sides. you got right side, you got left side. got to keep on looking. And we're using pinchers and there's a lot of wind. As soon as you pinch something, it wants to, it wants to go in the wind. So you're chasing stuff a little bit at a time. <laughs> We're having fun doing it. Like, it's a chore, but it's not an unhappy chore. Over the course of the day, over the course of the multiple days that you spend doing this, do you find yourself feeling more upbeat and positive because of the camaraderie of the group? Or do you find yourself feeling really mad at other people and pilgrims who've made such a mess of things? Well, I do feel mad about pilgrims and non-pilgrims because to blame the pilgrims would be, you shouldn't, because a lot of this is caused by motorists throwing stuff out of their cars because the Camino quite often runs alongside the highway. So that garbage is coming from a source other than pilgrims. 
So sure, you get mad, but you get mad at people being lazy. You get mad at people like jumping the queue. You get mad at people for all kinds of reasons. So, <laughs> and the actual picking up the thing is a solitary thing. It doesn't take two people to pick up the same piece of paper. So we break up into little subgroups in any given section. But it, like, if you're doing a good thing, you're doing a good thing. It never feels bad. That part of it. What is the group like? Does everyone who volunteers to be a ditch pig commit to the same amount of time? Well, let me see. In our six, two live here. Two ladies live here. I can stay till about Friday, and then I have to leave. And of the three gentlemen we've got, one of them lives in Madrid. He's an American, but he doesn't have restrictions that I know of. But one has to leave tomorrow, and one is leaving on Saturday. So we're a little bit bit up. We're from all over, so you can call me Canadian-Irish. French, then we've got an American from Madrid, we've got one Scottish guy, one British guy, and, and everybody traveled down to do it. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I traveled from France to do it. You would think France isn't far, but it still took me a day to get here. <laughs> I believe it. Did you come just to do that, or will you go make a pilgrimage when you're finished? No, no, it was specifically to do this. So when I'm done, I'm going home. But I came down specifically to do this, absolutely. When you do the Camino, it becomes part of your personal heritage that so you look after it. Do you have a sense, you mentioned that you've assembled 18 bags of garbage today. Do you have a sense of collectively what your, what your group is doing each day? Well, I would say you're going to have to multiply that by <laughs> a minimum of size because we have a six-person, but a lot of driving to and from has to be accommodated to get the pickers there and to get rid of the bags that's accumulated. So one isn't necessarily picking up actively. So I would say times five it. So you're probably at 100 bags a day. Yeah, it's amazing. Okay, the last thing I want to ask you, what are the most common kinds of garbage that you find yourself picking up? And maybe what's the what's the most interesting thing that you've picked up over the last couple of days? Oh, I just, I'll think about the most interesting. But right, I would say water bottles yep. would be one. Sometimes they're filled with curious liquid, undetermined liquid. And those things are heavy putting them in the bag. So I like to empty the liquid and just take my chances. Uh. Yeah, I know. So there's that. A lot of beer cans, um, car parts sometimes along the highway, you know, little accidents that happened. I've had a couple of hot cats. Some people figure that their shoes have done their job and discarded their <laughs> shoes. Some discard their underwear. <laughs> you can find all kinds of things. As Amelia got back to work, she passed the phone to Jim, an American living in Madrid. Here's his story. I had completed two small Caminos, and I decided that I really liked the uh, Camino and I enjoyed the spirit of the Camino, mm -hmm. and I thought it would be an interesting way to give back. Where are you working today? Today, we were working between San Martin and San Miguel. And how many days are you volunteering there? I think we're doing it for five days. So far, we're really, we're getting a ton done, and we've mm -hmm. had great, great weather. The forecast was anything but great. It looked like it was going to be raining every day. I've been following it for the last week, the weather <laughs> through northern Spain, and it looked yeah. like it was going to be a disaster. But no, it's fine. Yeah, I was marveling at the fact that Rebecca schedules this in November. It seems like everything could be very, very miserable. So I'm glad that you've lucked out. Yeah, but the thing about it is that <laughs> it's been cold a couple times and probably near freezing. So a lot of the grass and the growth that occurs along the sides of the trail die back. And you can see what's there. When, very often when it's in full growth, the grass or whatever is hiding it. So you can't really see it real well. But now that things are dying back, everything is very visible. So there's a method to the madness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Over the course of the time that you're there, are you sort of working in a straight line? Do you have a sense of how many kilometers you'll aim to cover, or are you dropping in at certain hotspots? The Camino breaks at just outside of uh, Leon. One is, I think it's a four or five kilometer longer trek, but it goes through kind of countryside and very small villages. Yeah. The more direct way is basically parallel with the highway. Not a highway, a kind of a catatata. It's a two-way road with limited entrance, moves probably 60 miles an hour or something like that. So it's a pretty busy road, a lot of trucks and stuff. What happens is, I think the pilgrims leave a little bit of litter, but you know, usually we don't want to carry too much stuff. So most of the stuff that we find along the trek is stuff that people toss out of the car, stuff that's been windblown from various places, but it, it ends up kind of at the edge of the trail. And it's ugly, feo. <laughs> so it's just nice to get rid of it. 
and you do it once and it's probably for three or four years, you wouldn't have to come back and do it again because you've really got lots of the plastic out, lots of farm stuff, like lots of twine, you know, for baling stuff. So you pick up a lot of that stuff. And a lot of it's already in, like, advanced decomposition. So you know that nobody has done this for years. And you can see what it's like. So the stuff we're doing is going to have an impact for many years to come because they've taken out a lot of the stuff that's probably been there three to ten years or more. That's really exciting. I had this vision when I, I first heard about the ditch pigs that you would just spend a week basically picking up empty plastic water bottles and toilet paper left behind by pilgrims along the trail. But you're doing something much bigger and more substantial and something that can't be pinned entirely on lazy pilgrims. Right, right, right. And pilgrim waste, for the most part, is usually you find it just outside of a town where people have picked up a bottle or picked up a candy bar. And you know what I would say? That more times than not, it's something that falls out of the pack by accident or you stick the candy wrapper in and then it gets blown off of where you tuck it. You know, like pilgrims don't have beer parties along the side of the <laughs> You know, we're, we probably have a few drinks when we arrive, but we don't necessarily drink along the way, you know? Yeah, not unless it's a really bad day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For, you know, if someone's listening and thinking this might be a fun way to give back to the Camino, could you talk more a little bit about... A, how you got involved, and B, what the experience is like just being part of the group over the course of the days that you spend together. Well, it's kind of like how it is when you're on the Camino. People come and go, and it's kind of an ebb and flow of people, and you end up meeting, going in clusters, and then separating, and then getting back together again. And it's very easy socially on the Camino, for the most part. Everybody kind of is real cool. It's the camaraderie of the Camino, but for a purpose. You're getting together, and you're trying to leave something behind that's better than what you found it. And what's interesting is we're still meeting pilgrims. All along the way, there's pilgrims going by. Yeah. You know, sometimes we stop and chat for a minute, and other times we just say, Buen Camino, they smile and give you a wave. Even this time of year, it's cold, it's late November, you've still got a regular trickle of pilgrims coming through. Yeah, it's, an, it's pretty interesting. Looks like most of them are European. There seem to be some North Americans, but not that many. Quite a few Koreans, believe it or not. Yeah, it's an interesting mix of people. That's great. Hey, thanks very much for talking with me. You're quite welcome, Dave. All told, this year's six ditch pigs managed to clear nearly 50 kilometers of Camino, covering trails from just after Leon to just before Astorga. Over the course of five nine-hour workdays, they pulled roughly 150 curbside bags of garbage. Julianne Milne of Sydney, Australia, is a hospitalero trainer, preparing pilgrims to serve other pilgrims in albergues on the Camino de Santiago. Thank you, Julianne, for joining me to speak about this work. A pleasure. Why did you decide to become an hospitalero? Strangely enough, I became a hospitalero initially because I wanted to be a hospitalero trainer, which is a little bit back to front. But I had been interested in being a hospitalero for many years, but lacked the confidence. At that time, most Australians who served volunteered through the Confraternity of St James, a London-based organisation that has two albergues on the Camino Frances and on the Del Norte. And while the Confraternity sends you a, a large manual, Australians went untrained and I was quite reticent to do that. Then it dawned on me one day that there must be lots of other Australians who felt the same way. And I was retired, but I was a teacher in a previous life. And it seemed natural to me to think, well, I'm going to do something about this and help other people take the next step. But in order to do that, I had to take the first step. So I volunteered with the confraternity to serve at Ravenel and then had the opportunity to do the Hospital Eros Voluntarius training with Rebecca Scott in Maritinos. So here we are now, serving with Hospital Eros Voluntarius as well as the confraternity. Have you served at other albergues besides Rabanau? Yes, uh, Rabanau was 2014, mm -hmm. and then I served with Hospital Eros Voluntarius at Berthianos in 2017. 
and Nahara in 2018. Usually I serve now with Hospital Eros Voluntarios simply because it's their training that I do. Do you have a defining experience or two from those three stints as an Hospitalera? Yes, they come under different headings, though, I suppose, different themes. For me, one of the unexpected bonuses of being a Hospitalera was the community contact. And I was surprised, really quite amazed, that in the space of two weeks, you could feel so much a part of the community. And in my first posting at Rabanel, the monks who lived next door to the albergue in Rabanel would come in every afternoon uh, to their victims, they say, to, to read at Vespers in the evening. And one night we didn't have an English volunteer. So I said, oh, can I do it? Yeah, great. So I read at Vespers and then I was asked to read at Vespers again and then invited to read at a special mass they were having for the uh, consecration of their new altar. So this was a big deal. You know, the bishop was coming and I was quite overwhelmed. It was a huge honour and I just felt so much a part of that community doing that. Yet I was only there for, for two weeks. But that's an opportunity as hospital era that I never would have had as a pilgrim. So it was something really special. But other defining moments have been little tiny things like the language challenges with pilgrims and feeling like you're an absolute failure because you can't communicate except with gestures and then have them leaving, throwing their arms around you and thanking you for the service that you've given, even though to you, you feel like it's been substandard because you haven't been able to speak with them. But of course, you're speaking with the language of the heart, and that's far more powerful than words. What about the flip side? What's most challenging about doing this work? Initially, with Hospital Eros Voluntarios, it's a big leap of faith to throw in an application form to go somewhere and you know not where because you say I'm available at this particular time and then they say okay off you go to this albergue <laughs> so at that point you don't know where it is and you don't know who your co-hospitaleros are going to be I've served with Italian German and Spanish hospital arrows and that again is a challenge my spanish now is the intermediate level but anyone who learns a language knows that intermediate is like the big black hole of language learning so it's a big challenge to communicate with your co-hospital arrows often so there's a lot of give and take but it's all a learning thing and I think unless you're out of your comfort zone you're not learning anything it's a challenge but it's one that I intentionally put myself in because I think that's how you grow uh, the best part can also be your co-hospital errors <laughs> you make some really good friendships with people that you may never have had contact with otherwise but I think for Anything though involved with the Caminos, it's such a great honour and can be a very humbling experience to be a part of other people's pilgrimage. And as hospital era, you're doing that over and over. You may only see those pilgrims for one day, but you just share some beautiful moments, but particularly in places like Berthianos where we had an oracion every night, a, a period of reflection. And again, the pilgrims may be saying something in a language that you don't understand, but you know what it is they're saying. And you just share some really beautiful moments that actually surpass language. And I think that that's just a beautiful part. And when you're hospitalero or hospitalera, of course, you get that lovely time of reflection every night for two weeks rather than just occasionally as a pilgrim. 
You mentioned a couple parts of the work day as an hospitalera. Could you walk me through maybe from what time you wake up to what time you go to bed? What are you doing over the course of the day? Oh, have we got all day? (laughs) (laughs) I think for a pilgrim coming in, it looks pretty cushy for a start. What do you do? You walk in, somebody might offer you a coffee or a glass of water and then they stamp your credential and they just want around and talk to people. Actually, you get up normally, if you're doing breakfast, you might be up at half past five, quarter to six to get the coffee on, you know, nothing like the wafting of coffee to get the pilgrims out of bed. And you're doing breakfast in the morning, waving pilgrims off, lots of lovely warm and fuzzy hugs and photos at that time, which is really nice. You might grab a quick breakfast with your co-workers and then you're cleaning. So most albergues, just bear in mind that what goes on through the day will differ from albergue to albergue depending on whether they offer breakfast, meals, whatever. So then you're cleaning for a couple of hours. Strangely enough, that's not a big deal. I hate housework at home. I loathe it. But it feels different when you're doing it as hospitalero. Pilgrims walk in and and they say, oh, wow, this looks so nice. And it's all worth it. So you do the cleaning. Then you have a shower. You might go and do some shopping for the albergue or you might have a bit of free time. You open, then you're welcoming and doing things like whatever the pilgrim needs. They might need you to listen. They might need some first aid assistance. Now, we don't do first aid, but we do have first aid supplies. We sometimes need to defuse situations if there's been conflicts. Somebody may come with bed bug bites and we'll need to treat them. And that's part of the training, what we do with bed bugs. And our pilgrims are always very appreciative of the fact that you don't go, ah. So everything's sort of calm and you take them through the, the treatment process. If you're having a communal meal, you may have started to prepare that or you use the pilgrims to do the chopping and helping with the preparation. You may have prayers in the evening. So it really depends on the albergue that you're in. But really the most important thing, I think, is you try and be all things to all pilgrims, whatever it is that they're needing. And often all they need is a friendly welcome. Other times they'll want a good listener. It's important that you're generous with your time and compassionate and caring. So it varies throughout the day, but it really is non-stop. You start, as I said, about five, quarter to six. You don't stop until that glorious moment of silence at about 10.30 at night, and you're on the go the entire time. The pilgrim might think that you've got it easy because you're not walking in the heat or the rain and you don't have blisters, But it can be quite exhausting because you're giving of yourself constantly for the two weeks. As pilgrim, I can walk and walk and walk and walk and walk, and it's not an issue. As hospitalera, I need a day of rest after I've finished, and uh, I never have a day of rest as a pilgrim. As you've said, you are responsible for the Hospitalero training program in Australia in support of Spain's Hospitaleros Voluntarios. What does that training look like? I know you've touched on some of the the things that you talk about in the training, but how long is it and what's involved in it? The training itself goes for two days. And like the hospitalero role itself, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the background, but the training itself goes for two days. And during that training, we're basically doing a big mind shift from pilgrim, where it's all about you, (laughs) to hospitalero, to it's not about you at all, it's about them. We look at those sort of qualities that are required in a hospitalero, what you can do in the albergue to make it more welcoming, because let's face it, some of the albergues are a little bit scruffy around the edges, but that's not what's important. What's important is what you as hospitalero can bring to the albergue, and that's that warmth and the welcome. 
We do that and in the training go through a lot of scenarios of things that might come up, anything from communication problems, either with pilgrims or with your co-hospital errors, getting along in the community and how important it is to do things like spread the wealth, visit different restaurants, bars, etc. So we take people through the whole day. We look at recipes that are suitable for cooking if you've got a communal meal. We have booklet of prayers if you're doing a period of reflection or narration in the evening. And after the training, I send the the names, uh, obviously, to Hospitaleros Voluntarios so that should people then go on to apply for a position, they know that they've done the training. Then before they go out on their first service, I send an encouraging email and afterwards ring the person who's been out on their first service to have a bit of a debrief and just to hear about their experiences. And that's always good for both of them. It gives a hospital error a chance to chat about their experience with somebody who knows, who understands. And it's also good for me as the trainer to learn about different albergues and how they operate. Is this necessary? If someone out there wants to be an hospitalero, do they have to go through training? You don't have to. As I mentioned before, you can volunteer with the Confraternity St. James without training and they, they send out a manual. Some hospitaleros have fallen into the job simply as pilgrims, walked in and said, hey, do you need a hand, and stayed around. I think for people like me, and I know lots of people who do the training, being able to get into a little bit more about what's involved, we do role plays of quite a few scenarios, Some things come up that you don't expect. You know, what do you do with a couple's getting a little too amorous in the (laughs) the albergue, which can happen. So I think for me, my decision to become a trainer was actually to empower people. I've long been involved with my local pilgrim group, the Pilgrims in Sydney, And I do a session for new pilgrims to prepare for pilgrimage. And I think it was for me a natural next step to think, well, there are people who want to be hospitalers but need to know more about it and just need that encouragement to take the next step. And so for them, and I think as it was for me, yes, it's necessary to do the course, For others, maybe not. HOSFOL will accept people without the training, but only if they arrive in Spain early and do it on site. So you still have to go through the training program, but it's in Spain and, of course, in Spanish. So your Spanish needs to be of a very good level to do that. There are other people now. Rebecca looks after the albergue in Grado on the Camino Primitivo, and that's on behalf of an organisation called FIX, the Fraternidad Internacional del Camino de Santiago. I believe that they don't insist on training, but I wouldn't guarantee that. So there are a lot of different placement organisations that can help an aspiring hospitalero find an albergue to volunteer in, and each one kind of has its different criteria. Yes, each organisation has their different criteria, but something like HOSFOL, they have, I think at last count, about 18 albergues. So you're not looking at just that one or two. It's a big group. And for them, yes, they virtually they insist on training. All the ones that I've mentioned, though, are Donativo albergues. That's certainly my focus and the focus of the training because I just find it incredible that this system exists, that you can go somewhere like the Camino and there are places that you can stay, particularly if a shortage of funds is a part of your life, that you have somewhere to stay, that you will be welcomed regardless of your ability to pay. 
And so the focus is for these Donativa albergues. Generally, with the private albergues, you can pop in and say, hey, you look like you need a hand, can I help out? Well, I mean, they're a business. Well, they're not going to say no, (laughs) but it's just like... I wouldn't volunteer my time at my local supermarket, but I might with a charity. So I think for someone like Hosfol, it's very important as an organisation that they have their hospital errors serving with a particular mindset, I suppose, and that's why they insist on training so that they know that their program has really put out how important it is that their hospital errors are compassionate and caring and welcoming, that these are prime considerations for them. And it's a point well taken. People can obviously have a great experience in any albergue. They can have a terrible experience in any albergue. But I would suggest, if you were to average it over time, the experience that you get in a donativa albergue is consistently memorable. I always feel like that. And I think it's because the people are volunteers from Australia, particularly. It's quite expensive to go halfway across the world to volunteer your time and your services. But it's for something that we believe strongly in. Obviously, while we're there, we'll throw in a bit of pilgriming as well. But I think that Donativo concept is such a valuable one and it's I, I keep mentioning the word honour, but it is a great honour to serve the Camino and its pilgrims by volunteering and thus maintaining or helping to maintain that Donativo concept. My last question for you, Julianne, how, if at all, has your work spend as an hospitalera changed the way that you think about your own pilgrimage experiences? I think it's just made me more aware of what goes on in the background, basically. As a a pilgrim like you, I had always enjoyed staying in Donativo albergues, but I was possibly in my little pilgrim bubble, and now I'm more inclined to look around me and just quietly do things, little things, like in the morning walking through the dorm, for example, and, you know, if you've been asked to remove the pillow slips and you just automatically now take them very quietly and just help out a bit. Now, I never cook for myself on the Camino. I can do it every night at home. Why would I do it when I'm away? But I might go into the kitchen and wash up and clean the stove down, you know, just little things like that because you know that day after day after day, it can start wearing you down as hospital arrows. So you just do little things to help out without making a fuss about it. So I think it's just made me more aware and possibly even more open, less judgmental, which is something I've been working on as a pilgrim. But the hospital era role has helped enormously, I think. Well, thank you very much for speaking with me. It's been a pleasure to get to hear about your work. And, and thank you for the work you do training hospitaleras to take care of pilgrims. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Tom A. from Florida, USA, has volunteered in the Pilgrim Office in Santiago de Compostela every year since 2014, and he now spends four weeks there each summer. That's amazing. Thanks for talking with me about your experiences in the office, Tom. You're very welcome, Dave. What drew you to this? What drew you to volunteering in the Pilgrim Office? Well, you know, we have a saying on the Camino that uh, Santiago works in strange ways. <laughs> it was after my first Camino in 2013. I was at the Pilgrim Office, which at the time was on Rua do Pilar. It was a rainy day, and at that time, you had to wait in the line in the rain and then go upstairs to a small office on the second floor to receive your Compostela. And as I was queuing to go up the stairs, this guy in a blue T-shirt started speaking to me in English. And he says, you know, are you an American? I said, yeah. He said, "Uh, have you ever considered volunteering? I said, huh? (laughs) They showed me the back of his shirt. It said, amigo. And I said, look, 
let me put it this way. I just walked 800 kilometers from France. I'm cold. I'm tired. I'm hungry. I really need a beer. No, I haven't thought about volunteering. <laughs> and he says, well, you should. We're making our way up the stairs as the queue's moving. So I get in. I get my first call Stella. Eventually, I come back home. I did inquire about volunteering. And then this was June. And the following year, I applied. I got an email from Johnny Walker. It said, you're accepted. The long and short of it was in 2014, I did my second Camino, also from Saint-Jean Pied de Port. I arrived on a Friday, and I started work as a volunteer on a Monday. What is a typical day like working in the Pilgrim office? Most everyone who volunteers in the Pilgrim office ends up behind the counter processing or interviewing arriving pilgrims and doing Compostelas. The demographic mix of arriving pilgrims changes throughout the year. In the, the hip seasons, the spring, March, April, May, going into June, and then October, November, like now, it's more mixed European, North Americans, Australians, New Zealanders. However, from mid-June through early September, the mix is predominantly Spanish speakers. In Spain, that's when most of the people take their holidays from work, and the schools are out. That's when I go to volunteer, because it's the busiest time of the year. So every year my Spanish gets a little better. It's not yet good enough to put me behind the counter. So what happens with me is every year when I go there, I greet all my friends. They're like my second family. And I say, okay, what would you like me to do this year? I'm ready to do Compostela's in my mind. You know, <laughs> I can make it happen. And they say, oh, los mismos, todos otros cosas. So it's basically the same thing, everything else. Simply put, is everything in front of the counter. So I do everything except actually interview pilgrims and write compostelas or other certificates. I will come in in the morning and I will do a tour. I will get rid of the trash in the office from the previous evening, neaten it up. I make sure everybody who's working has pencils, pens, ink in their rubber stamps, blank forms. Whatever they need to keep them productive, I see that they have. Then I walk around. I don't care what it is. If it's broken, I fix it. If it's lost, I find it. If somebody says, oh, geez, we could use, oh, I don't know, it could be something in name like scotch tape, I go buy it. I call myself Cinderfella. <laughs> and then in between, I merchandise souvenirs. So, you know, if I have a five-hour shift, I can spend the first two hours just making sure everything is neat and orderly and good to go. And by that time, we're getting around to noon, and then I help out with getting bags into the consignment where you can pay to store your bag and giving directions and helping with the queuing, whatever. If somebody has a question, I answer it. If they need to find something, I tell them where they can locate it. Things like drugstores on a Sunday, you know, who would know? me. And I, I take photographs of people. When people come out of the office with their freshly written compostelas and distance certificates and welcome certificates, sometimes they are in a good mood. Sometimes they are not, especially a family who drags kids. <laughs> so I will ask them if they would like a photo. And people look at me suspiciously and I say, no, 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 no cuesta, es gratis. You know, it doesn't cost, it's free. And I show them the back of my shirt, which says Voluntario. So they'll give me their camera. Usually it's a smartphone. And I'll get them in a pose and take a picture. But when I turn away from them and I have, <laughs> I laugh just thinking about it because it's ridiculous. I have red foam rubber noses <laughs> that I buy here in the States from Walgreens for Red Nose Day in May. And I bring them with me. So I'll put a nose on and turn around and then people start laughing <laughs> at me. And that's when I take the photo. Most people just see a clown. That's my contribution to making it a happy occasion for them. And so that's what I do. I think of myself as sort of the grease that keeps things running. I got to say, Tom, that sounds like a better gig than standing behind a counter all day writing in Latin. Well, it does. And, and one of the reasons you just alluded to, if you're assigned to do Compostela's, you have a five-hour shift, there are no breaks. People are treated like adults. If you need to use the toilet or get a drink of water, fine. Somebody will generally do a coffee run, but that's it. It's one after another after another, and it, you never know what story the next pilgrim is going to bring. It surprises me. I had this 
idea in my head that people went to the pilgrim office and they were just kind of trying to move through the process as quickly as possible, get the Compostela, move on with the next thing. But it's common in your experience for people to be open and transparent and, and almost seeking that confessional sort of situation. Yes, there, there's two reasons. One, when the volunteers are trained, efficiency is not one of the requirements. It's, <laughs> it's welcome. No, seriously. This is from the Archbishop on down. This office is actually a part of the cathedral. Okay, Function is to welcome the pilgrim. And welcome has a very broad definition. I have worked with volunteers and paid staff. They'll be polite and be professional, but they can get you in and out of there in two minutes. Okay? Mm -hmm. And there are people who take 10 minutes per pilgrim. And that's, you know, that's why <laughs> the line takes so long sometimes. It's just human nature. It's not a vending machine. Well, I know from our pre-recording conversation that you are a great storyteller. So tell me a couple stories. Let's start on the positive end of things. What are one or two really great experiences that you've had working in the Pilgrim office? The current location, we've been there since 2016. Before that, we were on Rua do Falar, which is on the other side of the cathedral, times of the year, the line would be all over the place. And in the old center, the historic center, the streets are very narrow. They're almost like alleys. They're pedestrianized, but taxis and police cars and delivery vehicles are permitted through. But for them to get through, the queue has to be up against the building. So my first year, I'm working with a fellow. He's a retired surgeon from the U.S. Army. And he likes to say that his last promotion was from Colonel to Santa Claus. <laughs> because he's the spitting image of the Thomas Nast Santa Claus. And he grew the full beard and the whiskers and the eyebrows, and that's what he does. That's his hobby. He plays San Nicolas, Bobo Natale in Italian, Father Christmas, Father Winter, Father Frost, whatever iteration of the St. Nicholas Santa Claus creature there is, he will do. So we're working this year. Man is also blessed with language skills, so he can speak eight languages. So we're trying to keep everybody in the queue and online and orderly, and I'm out in the street, and it's raining, and people are trying to stay dry. And there was a knot of people, Italians, it must have been six or eight people, and I couldn't get them to move. And I was like, please, just move one meter towards the building so the police car can get by. And these pilgrims are on their smartphones, they're smoking cigarettes, they're like, oh, looking at me like, oh, I scrape you off the bottom of my shoe. <laughs> so I go in. And I go to the other guy with the beard, Brad. Okay, I go to Brad. I say, hey, Brad, got a Babo Natale problem out on the street. He said, what do you mean? <laughs> and I told him. And he goes out there. And he stomps out there. And he, his belly's shaking. You got to get the full thing. His beard is like 18 inches long, right? <laughs> he comes out. And he's in Italian. He looks at these people. And he says, oh, get closer. Fluent Italian. These people look at him. Their eyes go like plates, the cigarettes fall out of their mouths to the floor, <laughs> and all of a sudden, I say, see, Baba Natale. More recently, though, I think some of the stories are the more serious things that I've seen. It could range from the Korean family two years ago, mom, dad, eight-year-old girl, six-year-old boy at the time, if I recall correctly. They had walked all the way from San Jean Pierre de Port, and these little kids walked the full distance. Hmm. The little boy had a Razor scooter. <laughs> he carried or rode that thing all the way from France. It was so cool and awesome. <laughs> I, I ended up giving both kids red foam noses that I mentioned earlier. Then there are the people who have infirmities who walk. A couple of years ago, everyone was looking for a fellow named Stephen from London because they'd encountered him walking the Camino Francis, and this fellow apparently had two crutches and a backpack and was doing it on his own. When I can make it, I go to the daily English Catholic Mass, which at the time was in the cathedral. And the day before, I had been there, and part of the ceremony, the priest just asked some people to introduce themselves, where they're from, how they got here. and So they're going around the chapel, and this fellow says, my name's Stephen from London. I didn't think anything of it. It wasn't until the next day that I saw in the forum that somebody was looking for this guy. And it turns out he had multiple sclerosis, MS, Mm -hmm. and he walked on his own. He walked 800 kilometers, and it was just awesome. 
I've met so many people like that who either come in on wheelchairs using crutches. Sometimes you actually tear up to see what these people did and what they suffered to get there. So let's go from there to the flip side. What has been particularly difficult or challenging for you working in the Pilgrim office? Ooh, the fellow who wrote me into volunteering for this in 2013 was correct. You always get far more out of it than you put into it. At the end of the day, you might be physically tired, you could be emotionally drained, but when you sleep that night, you sleep the sleep of the righteous. I mean, you have a good night's sleep because you've done good work. Difficult thing is really the frustration of working in a bureaucracy that is opposite everything I ever worked in. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I worked for the U.S. federal government. I understand inefficiency, waste, <laughs> fraud, abuse. Been there, seen it, okay? But when you go to another culture and have to do things their way, you could rail about something all you want, but at the end of the discussion, they'd say, yeah, but we've been doing this for a thousand years. <laughs> That's what happens when I talk to the senior clerical people. They say, yes, no, 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 we understand what you say. We understand that there are faster ways and cheaper ways and quicker ways, but it is what it is. <laughs> and, and you just grit your teeth and you say, oh, man. But then what you do is you just suck it up and say, I'm a volunteer. I'm here to help. And they can ask me to do anything and I will do it. The saying in the office is, ask Tomas to do anything, and if it's legal, consider it done. <laughs> if it's not legal, you have to be extra nice. <laughs> I remember a number of years ago, it seemed like the biggest source of tension in the Pilgrim office was people who were getting the new certificate, the new Compostela, instead of the old one. Is that still a source of tension, or has that largely sorted out? My first Compostela... 2013 was what I would call the old version. It's the same one. If you saw the movie The Way, it's that one. The next year, they changed it. It's much prettier. There are no more old ones. I mean, I haven't seen them in six years. Wow, they've phased them out entirely. What happens is they get a volume price on printing, and then these blank forms, whether it's Compostela's or visitation certificates, welcome certificates, distance certificates, <gasps> seeing eye dog certificates, you name it, they have certificates. But they buy them in bulk, and they use them until they're gone. It's the same thing with the credentials that they sell there and the cathedral makes available all over Europe. One year, 2016, pilgrims were complaining that the ink was smearing on the sales in the cathedral-issued credentials. Mm -hmm. So I went to the office, and... I just reached in and took out a, a new credential, and I started stamping it. I rubbed my hand across it, and sure enough, it just smeared. Yeah, they were terrible. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I said, this cannot be. So, <laughs> so one day, for some reason, Don Segundo, whose name is on all the certificates, he's the dean of the cathedral for all things pilgrim. He works for the archbishop all things related to pilgrimage. He happened to come to the office, and there was a meeting, and there were people from the management side who have offices in the cathedral, and everyone who was anyone was there. So I said, ooh, this is good. So I asked one of the staff who spoke very good English, tell them that I have a presentation to make for them, <laughs> but you must promise to translate what I say, not what you think I said. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he said, are you sure? And I said, yes. So I said, all right. I introduced myself. Someone brought this to my attention, and I want to show you. So I took the cathedral stamp, and I took one of the brand-new credentials, stamp, smear, and I showed it around. And then I said, okay, primero, segundo, the second one. I, I took the, the French one from Saint-Jean-Pierre de Port, Jum, no smear. The American one, stamp, no smear. Irish, stamp, no smear. And I just held them up. And Don Segundo, who's like God in this context, <laughs> turned to the managers of the pilgrim office and said, fix this. <laughs> <laughs> One of the fellows who got caught up in that said, but we have 30,000 of them in storage. <laughs> and then they just placed a new order, and then the new ones came in, and problem solved. Every year I try and do something to leave it better than I found it. That was a big help. Let's continue in this vein of complaints. I think people complaining about the Pilgrim office in online forums is analogous to the DMV in the USA. There are a lot of grievances. It's an accurate 
comparison because the actual process, whether you're an American, Canadian, German, I've lived in Europe, I can tell you going into any government office, it's the same process. You queue, you're seen at the counter, there are forms involved, and you have to deal with it. And some of the grievances are probably legitimate. They are. And some of them maybe are misinformed. Yeah, so some of them are, up until recently, the biggest recurring complaint, and it was entirely seasonal, is how long the lines were. Depending on the time of year, the day of the week, the time of the day, you could walk in and literally be in and out in 10 minutes. Or if you got there on the worst day at the worst time of day, you could be online for three hours. That was partially because of, one, not having every possible counter position staffed from opening time until closing time. And the second is expectations of the pilgrims. A lot of people think that they can, especially from the French route, people usually start arriving about 10, 10.30, coming in onto the Plaza de Obradoil, and they think they can go to the pilgrim office, stand online, get their Compostela, go to the noon pilgrim mass, and then take a bus or a plane out of town that day. <laughs> and I spent a lot of time trying to disabuse people of that notion. I'd say to people, that's not realistic, because this is the classical pig in the python. <laughs> the snake swallows a pig, it's, it's a bulge. And that's what happens. You know, if you show up on arrival, yeah, there's 10 or 20 people, but there's also eight people working behind the counter. So you're in and out 20 minutes, okay? But it, from 10.30 until noon, you get all these people. It's like a snowball rolling down a hill. They think they can get in and out. Some will leave to go to the mass, but most will stay in the queue when there was one. And then when the mass gets out, you get three or 400 more people in one belch, <laughs> and that's when the queue goes to two or three hours. The other problem, and this is just economics, there's not enough money to hire enough paid staff to do all the work. So during the summer, the season from Easter until end of October, they really can't function without volunteers. There's just not enough paid staff. There's not enough money to pay the staff. What happened this past year is they came up with a different system. The classical system that they have used since there's been a pilgrim office, which is several decades, it's FIFO, first in, first out. You show up, you get in a queue, you wait your turn, you're seen, and everybody who arrives is seen in turn. If the office closes at 9 p.m., half past 7, 7, 8 o'clock in the evening, they'll look at the number of people inside and say, okay, not a mass, no more, and they'll close the outer gate so whoever's working can get done and go home to their families. You know, these people have lives. And it never fails. That, you know, there's people who just didn't get the memo, didn't plan ahead. Oh, but I have a train at 7 in the morning. That's, it happens. So what they did this year is they instituted a system. I just call it the take-a-check QR code system. It's, it's similar to going to a deli counter or going to the DMV. You take a number. You go into the Pilgrim office. They have a nice, large, air-conditioned waiting area. There are kiosks, and you just choose your language, so you tap the British flag for English, take a button, and you get a slip of paper that has a QR code. That number is your place in line. And there are large screen TVs about the office that say, okay, we're now serving this number, and if your number is this number or higher, you should be upstairs in the hallway, where formerly there was a queue. Now people are meandering all over the place. They set it up so you can use your smartphone, scan the QR code. It takes you to a web page that shows you the current status. So let's say it's 10 o'clock in the morning and you have number 420 and the TV screen says we're on 137. You can leave the office. You can check into your hotel, have a snack get drunk, whatever. But you can scan the QR code using your smartphone and it will say, okay, we're on number 390. And you can look at your tag and say, well, I have 420, so I better get there. So you return to the office, they'll let you in, you wait right up in front near the door, and there's a TV screen over the door. I call it Senor Bong. I gave the screen a name because that's the sound it makes, Bong. And it would tell you what desk to go to. It would say, like, okay, Puesto 7. You go to desk number 7. Well, now what it says is now serving number 419 at desk number 6. 
So you say, oh, I got 420, I'm next. And then it'll say, now serving 420 at desk number 13, and you'll go in. The beauty of it is you don't have to stand in a queue in the rain, in the sun, whatever. Invariably, I'm asked, well, what about people who aren't up with the technology or don't have a smartphone? And they say, well, stay there. <laughs> you know, it beats standing in the rain. And what else needs to happen in your mind to be able to manage the ever-growing crowds? I know for a fact, because it was shown to me, that aside from the onesie and twosie pilgrims, one of the huge issues they have are groups. Most of us who come from North America or from far afield can't conceive of this. But if I'm working at the office and everything's running normally and all of a sudden 140 Italian Boy Scouts show up, <laughs> two things happen. One, order and discipline breaks down. Two, they rush the kiosks and they all start taking individual tickets. But that's not the way it works. Groups don't take numbers. Groups are handled in an entirely different process offline. Only the leader of the group, one person, who is supposed to have filled out all of those data sheets, one per person, is supposed to bring them and the completed credentials to a separate office, turn them in, get a receipt, and then they're told when to come back. Yeah, I had that process this summer. I lead high school groups, and we walked in, I filled out the sheet, left, came back later, easy as could be. Right. Now, imagine, if you will, you had 50 or 80 or 150 people from some church in Spain or some group who had walked the Camino. And it just happens that they're mostly like college students or scouts or you know, high school age or whatever. There's a lot of energy there. So when they come in, things get really wild and crazy unless you can get the leader and say, okay, here's the way it works. Only the leader. <laughs> we had that situation with the 147 Italian Boy Scouts. They'd all taken numbers, and they had totally screwed up the take-a-number queue system because what happens is they now know by experience and the number of people working behind the counter how many people they can handle per day. So under the new system, what will happen is even in the summer, if they say, okay, I have 17 processing positions, I know I can handle 2,000 people today, when the kiosk issues ticket number 2,000, they shut the kiosks off. Now, that could happen at 7 o'clock in the evening. It could happen at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. It depends on the arrival pattern that day, but it does not include groups. We had a lot of cases where somebody was saying, well, I was there at such and such a time and got such and such a number, and they'd shut the machines off, but if you get a ticket, you will be seen. The issue that they still have a problem with is how long it takes to get through all those people, whether they're standing first in, first out in a queue, as is the old method, or whether they've got these QR code chits and they're wandering all around Santiago, and you hope that they come back in time. We tell people, if the number is 30 or less between now being served and your number, finish up what you're doing and proceed with haste. If the number is 20 or less, drop what you're doing and rush, <laughs> because the line can move in fits and starts, and they will call your name three or four times, and if you don't show up, you have to go and repeat the process. Because what happened when this first came up, people thought they could get a number, go out, do whatever they wanted, come back in, and their number was like 50 beyond what was currently being served. They said, well, I had this number. I should go to the front of the line. Uh, no, it doesn't work that way. You must be here. So within a month or so, they adopted a no excuses for no shows. If we call your name and you don't show up, I mean, seriously, it's, it's like we called, and then 30 seconds later, you said, oh, I was in the bathroom. That's one thing. But if, if you show up like a half hour, an hour later and say, okay, here I am. Sorry, the number's invalidated. You've got to take another number. Problem with that is, since they know what their limit is for the day, if they cut off issuing the tickets early in the day, I've heard of it in September and October, some days they were cutting off the ticket machine before noon. Wow. Yeah, but that's, that's because so many of the volunteers had left, and they might have only had four or five people doing Compostela's, and they knew doing simple math, there's no way they were going to get through these people before closing time at 8 or 9 o'clock, which leads into the, oh, my God, what are they going to do for the whole year? <laughs> Last year, I was shown an online app, and what it was was an electronic version of that data form you filled out as a group leader. Mm -hmm. The intention was that group leaders would be able to submit that form in advance 
So you could be in Syria, fill it out, send it to us. And they were talking about ground rules. How, how far in advance do we have to have it? So obviously it can be done for an individual, but then they got to link it to the receipt system, which has not been done. I have suggested this for the whole year, and I'm going to try and nudge the ball a little bit down the road again this year, is that they need to offer a plan A and a plan B, actually a plan C. The problem with getting any technological changes or efficiencies of scale using automation is that there are some people in the hierarchy, just in the chain of command, who insist on tradition. And if you will, reverse all the way to 800 years ago when the first, well, in the beginning, there were not even compostelas. The symbol that you made it was the conch shell. And then shortly after that was instituted, human nature being what it is, people started finding shells and selling them, saying, oh, why go to Santiago? I'll sell you the shell in Leon. So then the church said, okay, we'll give out Compostela. So they've been doing that for many, many centuries. And originally you would present yourself at the church, you would establish that you were eligible, and a priest or a monk or a nun or some religious person would write it out on parchment. Fast forward, you can't do that anymore. There's too many people, the expectations are too high. And my view was that if we can satisfy the traditionalists, there might be a way to do this. So my view is keep the current system that you've got largely the way you've got it, but come up with a plan B. And my view of the plan B is to take electronic capture of the form for individuals that you can give us all your information and we'll give you the code. And then you come, you show us the code. That's what Tom Helper is suggesting that <laughs> pilgrims who have the wherewithal, the understanding, and are willing to do this, show up at the office, guard or even a volunteer would just scan their QR code. They could walk in. Somebody behind the counter can say, oh, buenas tardes, Senor Smith, we've been waiting for you. May I see your credential? <laughs> Look at the credential, establish that they meet the bona fides match, stamp, stamp, here is your compostela, here is your certificate of distance. Pay the lady over there. Gracias and welcome to Santiago. You can be in and out in two minutes, if that. And my view is even if you can handle half of pilgrims this way, and then plan C would be the group thing, which is your experience, but being able to submit the information beforehand, which presently it results in a staff member or volunteer handwriting the Compostelas and distance certificates and putting them together with a clip or in a bag, and you return with the receipt, and they just hand them to you. Mm -hmm. My view is you do it electronically. The documents are printed by a laser printer, and people say, oh, that's not traditional, that's not traditional. And I say, okay, fine. You get me 300 Benedictine monks sitting <laughs> in a cellar with candles, and you'll have tradition. <laughs> I'm not saying it's got to be done in an automated fashion. I'm just saying, look, Keep the same system you've got. It's always available. But for those people who are willing, who say, I don't need a personally handwritten Compostela from somebody who failed handwriting. <laughs> I would rather like having one laser printed using a calligraphic font. That's basically the difference. It's the identical form. You just put them in a printer. So that's plan B for individuals and plan C for groups. And the reason being is last year we had 327,000 in 2018. 2019, we're going to have a little bit more. Next year, we're probably looking at somewhere in the ballpark close to 400,000. Year over year, there's nominally 13 to 15% increase. Whether it's plan A, B, C, some combination, it seems like making it through the whole year in one piece in the pilgrim office is also going to require a higher number of volunteers. So how could someone volunteer to work in the pilgrim office? Almost two years ago, so many people had been asking me through the forum how to volunteer that one day in February 2018, I sat down and I wrote the A to Z, the how to volunteer for dummies, everything you would need to know. Perfect. I'll include a link in the materials. They can use volunteers 12 months out of the year. The peak time starts with Semana Santa, which is Holy Week on the Christian calendar, which is the week immediately before Easter, and it continues through October. 
Presently, during the nice season, the pilgrims are staying at the 800-year-old Convento do Santa Clara de Assis, which is the former Roman Catholic convent of the Franciscan Sisters. The rehabilitation of the Pilgrim Office campus is ongoing. Subject to the availability of funds, they are actually building 20 rooms for volunteers. This is what I'm told by Pilgrim Office staff, and the reason why they haven't been finished is because money that would have been used for that and other Pilgrim Office construction renovation had to be moved to the cathedral to get the cathedral done on time. I hope they get it done. Tom, thanks so much for talking with me and for giving so much of your time to the Pilgrim Office. One of the themes that stood out to me in these conversations is the depth of community created in these projects. The ditch pigs assemble for just a handful of days, but through shared labor, they quickly come together as a cohesive team. Tom, after a few years in the Pilgrim office, has come to see it as a second home, a second family, with deep connections in the office and across Santiago. Hospitaleros, of course, forged deep ties with passing pilgrims, even if they are forged in very short order. And indeed, that is the distinct quality of these experiences, that as the Camino goes on, constantly churns forward, pilgrims perennially pushing onward. These are opportunities to see that movement from a stationary perspective. Not idly or or restfully, of course, this is hard work. But it's a lens through which to see the Camino experience that we perpetual pilgrims otherwise miss. The magic of volunteering is that it's a two-way street. We can contribute work of value, of consequence, of urgency, and in so doing, make a positive impact. At the same time, though, we take away as much as we give. The sleep of the righteous, as Tom said, and a new way of seeing something familiar, something we have come to adore. If you're interested in pursuing any of these opportunities, I'll post direct links on the Camino Podcast Facebook page and at DaveWitson.com. That's all for this episode. Thank you to Amelia and Jim for speaking with me about their Ditch Pig experience and to Rebecca for coordinating. You can find more on the Ditch Pigs at peacefulprojects.org. Thanks to Julianne Milne for speaking with me about the Hospitalero experience. The program She Trains Through, organized by Spain's Hospitaleros Voluntarios, is offered by many Camino Friends groups around the world. Finally, thanks to Tom of South Florida for regaling me with many stories from the Pilgrim Office. Too many to share here, I'm afraid. Buy him a beer if you run into him in Santiago. You will learn a ton and be entertained. His guide to volunteering can be found in the Camino Forum. The podcast is now available on both Apple and Google Podcasts. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com or through our Facebook page. Thanks as always for listening.